Hello everyone, this is Eva Nolik-Smith with Yoga You Online and I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Ginger Garner who joins us to talk about new insights into the close connection between the three diaphragms of the body and how they can interact to affect the well-being of the whole body. So Ginger, first of all, big welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Eva. I really appreciate it. And whenever I work on your bio for these interviews, I always kind of get a kick out of it when I read you up because you probably are one of the most accomplished people I've met and I deal with a lot oh. of really accomplished people. Oh my goodness. Um, you have like a doctorate in physical therapy, you're a yoga therapist, you're an author of one of the most thorough books on yoga therapy called Medical Therapeutic Yoga. And you're a mother of three, a singer in a professional band, and you're running for political office. <laughs> this is the point where I start losing my breath. <laughs> and also, according to your bio for the last 25 years, your medical career has been focused on using yoga therapy and as training for healthcare professionals uh, and training healthcare professionals to use yoga for both medical purposes and self-care. And if that means you've been doing that for the last 25 years, it means you must have started when you were six. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, well, yoga keeps you young, right? <laughs> right? I just turned 45 this year and I'll credit yoga and hydration and eating well uh, and plenty of sleep. <laughs> and a few more secrets i'm sure <laughs> great um so we're here to talk about the three diaphragms of the body and how they interact to support our health and well-being um so right there most people are probably going to say you know what i thought we only had one diaphragm what are you talking about <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and some argue there's a, there's an article out there just to get that off the um, off the cuff right out of the gate, uh, and this is in the abstract that of the of the webinars that I'll be teaching for Yoga U in a couple of weeks. That some argue there's two more diaphragms. That there's five diaphragms. Um, I focus on the main three because in affecting change in those three, uh, we can affect the other two as well. So we kind of scoop all those up. Um, and the three ones that I'm referring to are, are laryngeal. Some people call it uh, cervical thoracic in my book. I just called it a thoracic diaphragm coming above the respiratory diaphragm, which is next, and then the pelvic diaphragm. And we often think of the importance of the pelvic diaphragm or the respiratory diaphragm, but oftentimes the laryngeal or cervical thoracic diaphragm gets uh, left out and right. it wants to be part of the party too. So. Right, right. And I think the reason we haven't considered these diaphragms is that the breathing, the respiratory diaphragm is one muscle, but the pelvic floor uh, consists of several muscles and um, you know, the thoracic diaphragm consists of several muscles, but you're saying they function as a unit and should be considered a diaphragm because of that. They, they do, and, and you can take any one piece and, and focus on that. So let's just say uh, someone wanted to, uh, you know, affect change in the respiratory diaphragm and work on pranayama or uh, yogic breathing. They can do that 
and have a measure of success. However, if the other two diaphragms, you know, upstream and downstream, aren't being considered, then they're only getting part of the efficacy that they could have. In other words, their program could be far more effective if they were considering both of those. Mm. And that's really the, the, the thrust of, um, is of offering this particular webinar and of spending all my time uh, teaching about it and lecturing about it and digging through the research. Mm. Yeah, and I think you're one of the people who emphasize that these function as a system, they're not like isolated. So could you talk a little bit more about exactly what that means? Well, they're connected in several ways. Um, the first way is through pressurization. We need to have optimal pressures. We know we can get pelvic congestion. We can get congestion in the cardiopulmonary system. And we can also have congestion and, and edema just in the vocal folds and the laryngeal area. We want to optimize pressure um, in each of the diaphragms. For example, if we don't have optimum pressure in the abdominal cavity, intra-abdominal pressure, um, then we know that the spine can, can be, um, I won't say destabilized, because there's many factors that go into stabilization of the spine, but you're not gonna get optimal functioning. Um, if I don't have optimal pressure, subglottal pressure here up top, I can't speak, uh, I can't uh, function. And if I don't have optimal pressure and what's called apposition, the shape of the respiratory diaphragm, then um, you think of it as someone who has um, a COPD or they've had lifelong asthma or they even have maybe uh, weight management issues, maybe obesity. The diaphragm can be flattened and that's going to change pressurization there too. So if they have um, they could have breathing issues, which then go on to affect um, the uh, neuroendocrine system. Uh, they could also have hernia issues. If pressurization isn't right in intra-abdominal, intra-thoracic, and subglottal pressure, then that can skew the system. That's one reason. Mm -hmm. Another reason is, is um, our favorite wandering cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, <laughs> connects all three of those pieces. And I guess the most poignant example of that that I can give is swallowing being a measure of our most visceral, uh, most rudimentary function. And that if we can't swallow, as in breathing also, then there is no life. There is no breath. We can't survive. We must be able to swallow our most visceral function. That means voice comes next. But if our voice and the sound it makes and the, and the pressure required to create that voice is non-optimized, then you can be sending constant measures of running from the tiger, fight, flight, or freeze via the vagus, since the vocal folds are innervated by the vagus nerve, uh, of threat. So mm. a constant threat signal to this area, whether it is I uh, teach an orofacial, exam, um, part of that I'll be going over in the webinar. Um, I teach an orofacial exam. If we constantly have, let's say, exterior, external, or extrinsic tension here, and you may often you see that if someone's speaking and they speak a lot with the muscles in the neck or you see them standing out, mm -hmm. those have a direct connection. And some of them neurologically, some of them vascularly, um, and some of them mechanically to the vocal folds yet sending more message of threat. 
So when I'm working with someone that is in pain or has experienced trauma, and I think we can, many people can check both or at least one of those boxes that, that they've experienced um, th those, um, you know, they've had adverse experiences. I need to be able to measure and identify in some way what their perception of threat is. Mm. If they perceive threat, which is then interpreted um, and expressed as fear, that is sending an adverse message to each of those diaphragms, and I'm not going to get optimal functioning. In mm. fact, um, through looking at um, the literature, um, the most important motor system we have is our emotional motor system, not our voluntary motor system. So if we think about the impact that yoga or therapeutic yoga and the use of yoga as therapy would have uh, through movement, you begin to realize quickly, well, none of the asana then are that important. Even though I use asana every day to rehab rotator cuffs and pelvic floor pain, sexual dysfunction, low back pain, and hip labral tears, I use that every day. And I'm, and, uh, I'm very structured the way I use asana so that it's very therapeutic in nature. But if we don't consider that the diaphragms could be perceiving and be sent, getting sent messages of threat, then the most well-laid, you know, asana plans that I have for someone won't work. Mm. If I'm not connecting with the emotional motor system. Mm. And it gets its right. information from the brain and the gut. Yeah. What, could you talk a little bit more about what the emotional motor system is? Well, our emotional motor system is our ability is driven by uh, neuroception and neuroception is the ability, the body's ability, the mind and brain's ability to detect risk. Mm -hmm. And someone who everyone has probably heard of Daniel Goleman's phrase, amygdala hijack. Nope. No. Oh, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> amygdala hijack is, I love this phrase. It's when you have a sudden reaction to something and the operative word is sudden. And in hindsight, you realize maybe that wasn't the greatest response. <laughs> and that's <laughs> called our, our lower brain response where right. something happens and our response is, we'll just call it non-optimal. Uh, we know we could have said something better. We could have done something better because we perceived a threat. We perceived risk. Mm -hmm. And if we're not training uh, our mind and bodies to respond in a way that would facilitate safety, then we will get the emotional motor system cutting off our ability to have our voluntary motor system functioning uh, in a helpful mm. way to mm. us. Mm. And I see that in a, in a lot of people who have pain, chronic pain, which is the only thing that I've really seen for 20 years plus years as a therapist is people in chronic pain and mostly women in chronic pain, but some men who are also in chronic pain as well is they begin to move and some don't even get to the point where they begin to move because they're so fearful of movement. And that impacts overall systemic health, um, their idea of wellness. Mm -hmm. And you know, as a therapist, I realized that the most important thing that I can do for someone is make them feel safe and give them a sense of uh, a locus of control or self-efficacy. And anyone who comes to see me, I want them to walk out the door feeling like I can do this, right? And that I have control over it. 
and then I can trust my therapist, you know, I can trust Ginger and, um, and she's going to do her best in a partnership model, uh, not a finger wagging dominator model to get me better. So if I can do that, I'm successful. And that's why the emotional motor system is so important. And the, the, the three diaphragms are kind of, um, uh, the whole, you know, royal court, if you will. I mean, sometimes I say the voice is queen in the pelvic floor kingdom and things like that. Um, <laughs> or building a pelvic floor that can sing. <laughs> <laughs> because so, they're so intimately intertwined. Yes. So um, let me recap my understanding of, uh, because you were talking earlier about the link to the vagus nerve and the three diaphragms. Mm -hmm. um, so what I took uh, from that part was that if there is tightness in any of the three diaphragms, it affects the vagus nerve and therefore detracts from our well-being. It does. So that's the neurological connection. That's all that drives the emotional motor response. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the mechanical connection. So as a physical therapist, that's what I would have been taught to dig into, you know, as a new physical right. therapist, right? right? What's the biomechanical reason? What's find the mechanics of it? You know, we always want to dig into that. Um, yeah. You know, thirty years ago when you're in training, but we know now, yes, that's still important, but it's not the whole kind of ball of wax. But what you'd want to be um, alert for is uh, abdominal scars, and a lot of people have abdominal scars, low back scars, previous surgeries, C sections, mm. episiotomies all of the things that would affect the fascial tension. If the fascial layers cannot glide, and maybe it's dehydration. So I talk to patients about nutrition and, and hydration. If those layers cannot glide, and if there's scarring, deep scarring on top of that, um, and we know that 90% of patients who have abdominal surgeries have adhesions. Mm -hmm. Now only 10% of those go on to have significant complications like obstructed bowel or things like that but most people are going to have abdominal adhesions and that will affect pressurization and, and the vagus input um, to the three diaphragms as well as just the, the straight up mechanical functioning uh, of them as well. Mm, very interesting. And you are also saying that um, the balance between the three diaphragm affects core stability and the health of the core. It does. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, the two questions when I'm training therapists and doctors and, uh, and sometimes nurses who are involved in rehab, the two questions that I ask them are, are this, is, is the muscle that you're identifying, let's just see, we're talk, say we're talking about the transversus since that's such a popular you know, muscle to focus on. Uh, is the transversus abdominis weak or is it inhibited? And sometimes if, it, if it's getting an emotional motor uh, input that detects threat, uh, meaning the neuroception is off of it, then maybe it's not weak at all. Maybe it's just inhibited. So sometimes a patient will come in, I'll do um, hands-on work or sometimes meditation, mantra, you know, pranayama, sometimes asana work too. After I'm done with a single session, when I do my pre-test and post-test, the transversus is actually fine. So it, it wouldn't have gained any strength in a single session. So it was just, it was inhibited in some way. So that's what I ask, you know, that's just an example of what I'd ask, um, um, you know, 
when I'm training the trainers, you know, training the therapists and, and training other doctors. Um, the, the other thing that I was going to say is, uh, oh, is used to use a surgical example. A patient, and I've had this happen a lot, <laughs> uh, ACL patients, we could, we could use that. Let's use an ACL reconstruction uh, a patient that comes in. Um, I remember this particular example of, say, a, a baseball player. He had his ACL reconstructed. Um, and before, in prehab, he had great quad hamstring functioning balance. We, we did what we were supposed to, to get, supposed to to get him ready for the surgery. He comes in afterwards and they're not functioning anymore. Mm -hmm. So what happens, right? They don't atrophy in like three days, right? right, right. It's most likely inhibited in some way. And we still don't exactly understand the mechanism of why. But I think it goes back to the emotional motor system. There was a scalpel in that quadricep and across the tendon and in those structures. Right. I don't think the body can take such trauma without kind of digesting that as a threat, as it should be digesting it. So right. what if the emotional motor system is in charge, in effect, and we're talking about the quad, you know, not necessarily the, the, the vocal cords, but I believe that th some things do shut down right. Uh, right. when they experience trauma. And then it's my job to figure out, is it a voluntary motor system issue or is it an right. emotional motor system issue? Right. And the three right. diaphragms help sort that out. Yeah. And the uh, three diaphragm also... Um, affect core strength via the intra-abdominal pressure or rather uh, core balance, core stability via the intra-abdominal pressure. Could you talk about that? Uh, yeah, um, there's three, three systems um, or three types of pressure that, that go into the whole pressure system for the three diaphragms. There's, uh, you could say intrapelvic, but we'll call it intra-abdominal pressure and intrathoracic pressure and a subglottal pressure that are identified in the literature that contribute to the pressurization of the three diaphragms. We also know that there are voluntary motor systems, right? So we've got this whole emotional motor system, we've got the voluntary motor system. The voluntary motor system are the three diaphragms themselves. The external and internal um, makeup of the vocal uh, or laryngeal diaphragm, thoracic diaphragm, You've got the makeup of the respiratory diaphragm, which is a little bit more straightforward. It's the respiratory diaphragm. And then you've got a makeup of the pelvic floor, and that's more complicated, just like up here. And if you look at schematics of them, they look, especially in females, they're rather identical. The pelvic floor looks almost the same as the vocal cords for good reason. This, the functioning of them can be very similar. So especially when you look at the neuroscience, when you look, when you pull back the curtain and you look behind, you're like, wow, they're very connected in what they do. Um, so in the pelvic floor, we have um, something that I call a hip lock in medical therapeutic yoga, which consists of the deep gluteal sling, all of the deep, um, the, the superficial gluteals, the, the glute med, the glute men, all six of what we used to call hip external rotators, but we know that Two of them are actually too short to act to function in rotating the hip. So they actually help flex and extend uh, the hip in different ways. So when you look at the deep gluteal sling, there's a muscle called the obturator internus, and it feeds through the pelvis and into the pelvic floor. So when you think about the pelvic diaphragm, you would think, oh, it's just the levator ani. It's a kegel. It's a, it's a mulabandha ashwani mudra, but it's more than that. That's why in medical therapeutic yoga, I 
bring the hip lock into it because they're intertwined, literally, figuratively, they are synergistic. So I can't really pull the hip lock away from the pelvic floor. Mm. So when I teach those, I have to bring all of it uh, together. There's also, so we get kind of layer more things on top of it. When you talk about terms of core stability, um, there are connections, obviously the respiratory uh, diaphragm, the fascia of the core, uh, the actual core itself, the pelvic floor are connected. But when you look at the vocal diaphragm, the other layer you have to build in too is the shoulder complex. Hmm. Some muscles of, from the hyoid attach to the shoulder blade. They oh. attach to the sternum. Oh. That means if someone comes in with shoulder pain, I'm most likely gonna find some dysfunction connected and I need to treat both of those. So when someone comes into me, you know, as a patient, I need to look at the whole picture, all three diaphragms, which then includes the hip and includes the shoulder, their core, their trunk stability, which is dependent on the pressurization, on the vagus input and tone, on their ability to detect threat, um, which then brings the emotional motor system and the voluntary motor system together. And each can be equally important, but we know that this function, the voice, the vocal area, the laryngeal diaphragm is probably the most visceral, most necessary function we have. So if I don't treat this area, then everything downstream is, um, I don't have the best chance for optimizing outcomes. Yeah, very interesting. Now, if we um, turn the discussion to yoga and um, yoga techniques that affect the three diaphragms of course the first thing that one thinks about is the bandhas mm -hmm. um, so are the bandhas a way of engaging the three diaphragms and help regulate the internal pressure they are i've um in in the t my text um in the mty text i recalibrate those according to the current scientific literature. What does the current evidence base say about the diaphragms and their functioning? And then I apply that to evolve what we used to do with locks. So they look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. In Jalandarabandha, in Chinlock here, we're, we're essentially in the text, and there's lots of graphics um, that you can pick up the book and look at. We're essentially talking about a, a cranium C1 function. If people don't have that, I find that they're not able to progress into the most simple things like a, a bridge or two foot posture that mm -hmm. I've got to establish ultimately normal laryngeal function, normal cranium C1 Jalandhara Bandha in the way that I uh, define it before I can progress on. Um, Uddiyanda Bandha is focusing on not just the way it was traditionally defined of, you know, of rectus or just a... Uh, an individual isolation, but I'm looking at Uddiyanda Bandha as a unit. So mm -hmm. what I do there is put it together with Mula Bandha and Ashwani Mudra. So all three of those go together to construct something I call TATD breath. That's the, the short acronym for transversus abdominus assisted thoracodiaphragmatic breath. Oh. It's a little bit of a mouthful. That's why I just call it TATD breath. And the other way to identify it is just calling it power breath, because we have a regular gold standard diaphragmatic breath where the diaphragms you know, will descend. Now the vocal diaphragm just stays at a, as, a, as a steady state, but the other two diaphragms will descend on, on the inhale and ascend on the exhale. Mm -hmm. 
that's when you're relaxing or you're trying to go to sleep. But if you need to, let's say you're a mom and you've got to lift the three bags of the groceries on one side and the car carrier on the other side, I may have, I may need to train her to use 75% or 60% TATD breath so that she doesn't leak, that she doesn't have pelvic pain, that maybe that hiatal hernia that she has or that diastasis rectus abdominis, that DRA that she has, doesn't split or go deeper anymore and cause a prolapse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the bladder or the uterus just deciding that it's gonna fall out. Um, I've gotta be able to train a measure of those bandhas okay, and mudras, that, which is called TATD, that's the next section. So we have Jalandhar Bandha, Uddiyanda Bandha, Mula Bandha, Ashwani Mudra, composing TATD breath. Mm -hmm. That is very task dependent um, and very functional in nature. For women, it's gonna be trained differently than it wanna be in men. And then the last two that I include that aren't necessarily traditional, um, bandhas or locks are the shoulder lock that I described and the hip lock that I described. Mm -hmm. We can bring all those together functioning mm -hmm. and then apply um, our hatha yoga practice uh, mm -hmm. over the top of it. And that's what MTY is essentially about is taking the yoga postures, the breath work, the mudras, re redefining them and evolving them according to um, physical therapy, other rehab type of rehabs, and neuroscience, mm -hmm. and then emerging with something that saves you time, essentially. Right, right. And will optimize pressurization of the three diaphragms. So yeah. that's what it all comes down to, really, is yeah. something that I'll teach uh, those who sign up for the webinar. Um, I'll teach them something called the nap meditation. Mm -hmm. If people can nap properly, and they can use those locks properly, they can pretty much do anything they want. You know, they can, yeah. uh, you know, turn on their spidey sense and climb the side of the building. Not really, but <laughs> they can do a lot and do it well and not have to, um, they don't need me then. I mean, my job yeah. is to see patients, to get them better and out the door and where they're independent and they don't necessarily need me anymore right. uh, to come back and progress or whatever it may be. Um, but eventually they should be independent and they should be able to manage that pain or maybe they even become pain free um so so when i when i wrote the book and when i teach my focus is to make people as independent as possible so they spend the least amount of money possible and they do it in a very efficient way so that i don't have to ask them you know can you do one hour working out a day no that's not typically what i have patients do i'll have them do something for five minutes maybe three times a day mm -hmm. uh, so i like to look at rehabilitation and wellness is something that can be done in a short time frame that's that's realistic for them and that's yeah. what the three diaphragm approach really is yeah and just as a very practical example of that is um, pelvic floor issues like incontinence and prolapse and um you say the most most of the time we consider that an issue of weak pelvic floor muscles but you're really saying no it has to do with the internal pressure and how the balance is between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and where you um, put the pressure when you engage. Right. Um, and so that, I think that's a really important contribution that you are drawing out more clearly than is mostly the case because usually it's like, oh, if you have pelvic floor issues, go do Kegels. 
but you have a whole different approach. It's really about creating the balance between the diaphragms and enabling the diaphragms to function as a holistic system rather than um, individual units. Exactly. And, you know, the, the traditional kind of approach that physical, that's taught in physical therapy even is, uh, you know, you, uh, you can either uptrain the pelvic floor or downtrain the pelvic floor. Uptraining is kegels, you know, downtraining is, is pelvic floor relaxation. But the, the reality is it's far more complicated than that. And part of it is exactly what we've been talking about is optimizing pressurization mm -hmm. of teaching people how to accurately detect risk and not have an amygdala hijack um, of optimizing vagus tone and function, which is layered. And I'll be introducing how to do that. There are some distinct measurable ways of how to do that. Um, and the other piece is, is our management of stress, you know, sexual dysfunction. For example, I had someone come in with complicated uh, gut dysbiosis, um, lifelong inflammation, blood in the stool, uh, sexual dysfunction that was rather severe. And she had been told for 14 years, and she was only 28 at the time, 14 years that it was all up here, that she just needed to relax. She had her first colonoscopy at age 14 and repeat, and those are high risk procedures. Mm -hmm. And she had come in with all this long laundry list of things, was desperately wanting to have another child, but couldn't uh, because of all these issues. And it was only about three visits. It only took three visits in, in a, using the, the tools that I've been talking about here uh, before she was independent and on her own and doing well. And mm -hmm. Just if you look at it from a policy perspective, the cost savings of right. stress, right, that yeah. she had for 14 years and all of the tests, all of the copays, all of the deductibles, all right, of the right. things that she had to do. And then she was saddled with no control, right. little self-confidence, little self-efficacy, and she had a massive distrust, and rightfully so, of the system mm -hmm. that had told her that it was all her problem that because she was um, chiefly because she was a woman, it must not exist. Uh, and that wasn't a real issue. Yeah. So it, it's part of my, and you can hear me kind of veering off towards policy a little bit, but I think that's a major issue that we have to address. If, right. if, if women you know, and men want to learn to take control of their health, we need to learn some, some very basic pieces. And the three diaphragms are ones that will take you a long way to know what questions to ask your healthcare provider. Are you getting the right care? Is this a good physical therapist you're actually going to? Mm -hmm. uh, and then how to use yoga in a way that is far more effective and, and far more therapeutic if we can just enter in this, these, you know, these few pieces um, of solid science. So Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um, so last question, you already made reference to um, the course that you are teaching on the three diaphragms on Yoga U a couple of times, but uh, give us a brief overview of what you are covering in that course. Well, we want to identify the specific mechanisms um, from a neuroendocrine, you know, neurovascular um, perspective um, and musculoskeletal perspective of what can drive dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And then go on to determine if we see this impairment, then what do we actually do? 
And there are things to do, there are things to avoid, there are some, some tricks of the trade that I'll show you that are easy, uh, simple ways that anyone can practice that have low risk to them. Mm -hmm. you know? There are some things you might do that might have higher risk. The things that I'm gonna teach are going to be applicable across every single population. It doesn't matter whether you teach kids yoga or whether you uh, see your, or whether you're a practitioner and you see spinal cord injury, right? Mm -hmm. um, exclusively, or, or geriatrics, or you know, patients with stroke. Anyone can use these techniques because I'm going to draw out pieces of the literature that support uh, these techniques across the lifespan, including um, children with learning disabilities, like being on the autism spectrum. These techniques are going to work for them too, as well as women's health. The voice really is the telltale sign of health in, in a person. To me, it's the new biomarker for wellness, including sexual health and health all the way across the lifespan, um, which moves far past just core structure and health, even though that's where I've spent the bulk of my time is treating low back pain, hip pain, neck pain. Um, now I'm treating um, a lot more vocal issues too. Um, but the chief driver of all of this vocal complex, all three diaphragms, the motor systems uh, that I've discussed is stress, mm. is stress. Right. We need to be able to change the way people respond to stress and that will be the underlying component because in all the, re the research literature that I have uh, reviewed, stress is a driving factor for vocal issues. If a person has vocal issues, I can usually match up what's going on downstream with other impairments in the diaphragm. So that's in kind of short what I'll be going over. Right. It's a lot of information packed into one, but you'll walk away with things that you can apply immediately in your classes or with your students or with your patients if you are a healthcare provider. Wonderful. Yeah, and I, I think like as with most uh, things in yoga, um, it sounds like it's another way of learning how to use our body more effectively and uh, address not just specific issues, but really improve our overall all well-being. So it's very biopsychosocially driven, a very preventive in nature. But for those with specific diagnoses, it will also help them as well. Wonderful. Well, Ginger, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, very, very interesting material. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. I, I love what I do and, and I just love every time we get a, a chance to sit down and talk. I could do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again and we very much look forward to the course. Take care. Thank you. You too. You too.